Let's take a look at our text. Uh, the first one is found in Exodus chapter 20. And then, as I said, we'll, we'll flip over to um, Genesis 3. Uh, I'm reading to you what is, in essence, well, not in essence, but what is the Tenth Commandment. It's verse 17. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, Genesis 3. I'm going to read you the first 12 verses of Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of the which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, that endures forever. One of the Aesop's fables is a story about the Greek mythological god Zeus who comes to one of his subjects and he uh, offers to grant any wish that he might have on this condition, that whatever you wish for, your neighbor will be given twice as much. So the man thought about it and goes back to Zeus and he says, then I wish for the loss of only one eye. Do we really hate the prosperity of our neighbor that much? To this point in our look at the subject of envy, I really haven't told you much that you didn't already know. I, 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 um, I bet you you knew pretty much everything you've heard. It, it perhaps hasn't been very uh, enjoyable to listen to, very comfortable to listen to, um, and maybe you haven't thought about it much because uh, of the discomfort. I mean, we don't we don't like uh, delving around and our probing around in our souls like that. I understand that, 
But again, uh, what you've heard has really not been um, all that, uh, no, no real startling revelations, I don't think. Um, but this morning we're going to go just a little bit deeper because there's really more here than they at first meet the eye. Our subject, envy, uh, tells us a lot about God and it tells us a lot about ourselves. And so that's my two points this morning. Basically, what does envy tell us about God? And then, what does envy tell us about ourselves? So, what does envy tell us about God? Well, to answer that question, I want to draw your attention to the Tenth Commandment, which says, Thou shalt not covet. Now, wait a minute, Jimmy. Um, I thought we were talking about envy, and now you're, now you're introducing the subject of coveting. But guys, do you remember in the first sermon in this series, I told you something then about the words that are found in the, in the Old and New Testaments. I said then that there are three Old Testament words, three Hebrew words, and three New Testament or Greek words that are used interchangeably. There is such enormous overlap in the words that sometimes they'll be translated covet, sometimes they'll be translated envy. Same word. I, I, they are to be made, the distinction is to be maintained, but they're, they're very, they're very slight distinctions. For instance, I told you in that first sermon that, um, that we normally covet things and envy people. But guys, the action itself is the same. I want something that isn't mine, that doesn't belong to me, that has, it is, is somebody else's, and I'm not supposed to have it. Coveting, envying. What I'm saying is that those words are almost synonyms. They're so close in their, in their, their meanings that I'm going to use them this morning as if they were synonyms. So. What does envy tell us, or what does the tenth, what does envying tell us about God? What is the tenth commandment? What is the prohibition against envying, coveting? What does it tell us about God? Well, first of all, it tells us that He's not only interested in my behavior externally, but that He is also interested in my thought life internally. That is, God wants his people to behave rightly, but he also wants them to think rightly. For example, how is it that you covet or envy? I mean, what part of the body do you use? I mean, if you, if you, um, if you tell a lie, You've got to use your, your mouth, your tongue, your lips. If you steal, you, you got to use your hands. But what, what part of the body do you use when you envy, when you covet? Oh. Oh, I see. Envying is something that you do on the inside. You see, ladies and gentlemen, when the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, 7, when he says, um, if the law had not said thou shalt not covet, I would have never known sin. When he says that, 
He's going through this process. He's thinking, okay, uh, it says there, thou shalt not uh, bear false witness. Well, I don't do that. You know, I don't lie to anybody. I always tell them the truth. And thou shalt not steal. Well, I don't do any of that either. No, sir. Never, never stolen a thing in my life. Then he comes down to number 10. And number 10 says, um, thou shalt not covet. And he starts thinking, how do you covet? You don't use your hands. You don't use your tongue. Oh, I see now. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the 10th commandment forbids or prohibits a state of mind. God claims proprietary rights not only on the way that I live or behave or act, he claims proprietary rights over the way that I think. His lordship extends not simply to my behavior, but it goes further than that. It extends all the way to the way that I think. Let me give you another example. The story of the rich young ruler. You know that story, don't you? I mean, it it appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, uh, good teacher, what must I do to to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Um, You know the commandments. Uh, Don't kill, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, and honor your parents. And the rich young ruler says, well, boy, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, that's, that's good news to me, boy. I want you to know because I, I've never done any of that. I mean, from my youth up, I've never done, I've never violated any of those. So Jesus says, um, well, I got one more thing for you. Uh, one more thing that you need to do. You need to sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and come and follow me. And with that, you know, he turned and left. Now, gang, what did Jesus do with that question or that that sell all your possessions? What did he do? What what part of him did he expose? That is the rich young. What part of the rich young ruler was exposed? His his external behavior? No, no, no. What was exposed was the insides of him. Gang, I have been a Christian. Some 38 years. Be 38 years September. And I have over those 38 years, like so many of you, have pretty much mastered, not, not perfectly, but pretty much mastered all the things that you can see. But that other battle, the, the, the inside stuff that you can't see. Oh, that battle rages on. You see, God is interested in both halves. Not, not just my external behavior, but my internal thought processes. And that's a scary thought, particularly if you're not a Christian. Because a Christian, a non-Christian thinks that the way that he's going to please God is by outward behavior. 
And, and this commandment just tells us that God is not only interested in, in my externals, He's interested in my internals. Jesus even goes on to say that, that you don't have to commit the act of adultery to be an adulterer. Remember that? If you look upon a woman to lust after her, he says. Um, you can, you can, you can, you can begin an adulterer on the inside. You see, guys, no sin can hide like envy. In fact, we, we take care, great care, to camouflage it, to, to hide it even from ourselves. I had a, had a young woman say to me, she said, I have been doing something ever since I got out of college, and, 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 and only now do I see it as envy. I mean, we, we, there are things that we have been doing that we didn't know ourselves were, were denounced, were, were envious. Because to admit, I mean, the most humiliating sin of all to admit is that we are envious. It means that we're, that we're small. We're mean. So I don't want to admit that. And so I take great care to, to, um, to hide it, to camouflage it, to, um, to disguise it, even from myself. Um, it, it is it is the most secret of sins, folks. It is a talent for disguise. Nothing nothing has a greater ability to 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 fool even its possessor than does envy. You know, we like the uh, the rich young ruler. We can claim um, we can claim innocence with respect to the first nine commandments, perhaps. But when we come to number 10, guys, we have learned and we are succeeding in areas that people can see. But I break the 10th commandment and no one will know it except God. You see, only God could have thought that up because he's the only one that can police it. God sees both parts of me, the the insides and the outsides, and that's what envy tells us about God. For him to claim that proprietary right tells us that he is aware not only of what I do on the outside, but what's going on on my insides? So that's what envy tells us about God. But what does envy tell us about ourselves? A lot. <laughs> Let me give you a principle. Um, your envies blaze a trail to the center of you. Let, let me say that differently. Follow your envies and you will discover, um, you will discover, shall we say, the uglier side of you. 
trace your envies. And you'll find out things about yourself that you really, you really don't want to deal with. I am um, in my, my preparation for this little series. I read a book. Um, I read several books, but one of the books that I read um, mentioned a movie. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to have to go out and get that movie and watch it. And so I did. I went out and watched this. I rented this movie and I watched it. And, and let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I encourage you to go get it. Get it this afternoon. It is, um, it is, it is, is it's long, but it's good. Um, in fact, it won the best picture of the year, the best movie of the year award in 1984. And that's why many of you didn't see it because many of you weren't even born in 1984. But Best Picture of the Year, it was nominated for like, uh, I forget the exact, but like 86 awards and won 62 of them. Who starred in it? Don't know. They were, they were no names, but they were excellent. The title of the movie was Amadeus. It's a, that's a term that means beloved of God. It was a movie about Mozart. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. But, but really, the, the movie wasn't, the really, it really wasn't about Mozart. It was about his, his, uh, his primary rival, who was an Italian composer by the name of Antonio Soleri. And Soleri was the, the court composer in Vienna in the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the king's court. And um, the, the movie portrays Mozart as this as this supremely gifted jerk. He he preens himself and and chases women around the room and and he uh, uh, he giggles oh just absurdly obnoxiously. And he, um, he, he uses this wonderful mind of his to create, to invent these vulgar crudities like, like talking dirty backwards. And he, he scorns the, the, uh, the compositions of other composers and while he praises his own and, and, and talks about how much better his work is than theirs and, and day after day, Mozart continues to crank out these, these, these pieces of music that are, that are just soaring in brilliance. And the rest of the composers can only listen and, and envy. Meanwhile, Salieri is a man who has, um, has lived his entire life for music. Um, as a boy, he dreamed of being a, a famous composer one day, but but his father stood in his way. His father didn't want him to do that. His father wanted him to do something more practical. And one night at the supper table, when Salieri was a 10-year-old boy, one night at the supper table, his father chokes on a piece of meat and dies. <laughs> and Salieri calls it a miracle from God because his father, has, as an obstacle, has been removed <clears throat> so that he can pursue this career in music. Later on, Salieri prays, and I'm quoting, God, let me celebrate your glory through music. Make me famous. In return, I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility, every hour of my life. 
And everything was going swimmingly. Everybody loved Salieri. Until, until he came. Until Mozart arrives. And with every new piece of Mozart's music, Salieri was made to feel his own mediocrity. He was, he was the prototypical also ran. And, and ironically, he was just gifted enough to understand how much better Mozart's music was than his own. He, he, um, he says at one time, I was staring through the cage of my own mediocrity reading his music. And what he had asked God to give to him, God had given it to Mozart, that, 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 that vulgar man. It was Mozart who was Amadeus, the beloved of God. This, this obscene brat. What was God thinking? Well, I mean, how could he, how could he do that? And so Salieri, eaten up with envy, begins to have these violent thoughts. And, and, he, and in the midst of that, he gives birth to this, this ingenious plot to murder Mozart. And in one particular place in the movie, which is just, oh, it's just captivating, he says to God, from now on, we are enemies. And he takes this crucifix and he throws it into the fire. And he vows to God, I will ruin your creature. Talking about Mozart. Mozart dies prematurely at age, I think, 28. But it wasn't at the hands of Salieri that he died. Salieri ends up going mad and, and blames himself for the death of Mozart. And the last scene in the movie is Salieri is an old man now. And a priest is wheeling him in his wheelchair back to his room at the asylum. While he is shouting out all these things about mediocrity. Mediocrity is everywhere. It's everywhere. Now guys, do you see the principle that I, I told you about? Follow your envies. And you will find out what really is in your heart. You look at Salieri and he was, he was willing to plot, to conceive, and to execute murder. He, he rejoiced at, at the fact that his father was killed by a piece of meat. He, um, he, he had this great hatred of thinking of himself as mediocre. And his good behavior was only a, a, a part of his bargain to wrench from God what he really wanted. And what he really wanted was fame. And when you trace your envies, they ultimately take you back. And you find out some things about yourself that, that may be very, very uncomfortable. Guys, envy at the bottom of it is a question about the injustice of the way that God has arranged things. You see, Salieri, Salieri thought that this great blessing from God should have been his, not Mozart's.
I'm the one that bowed to you by industry, my chastity, and my humility. Why didn't you give that to me? The, the envious tend to be injustice collectors. That is, envy asks one main question. What about me? When I covet, when I envy, I am plainly saying to God, I am dissatisfied with you. Coveting or envying or jealousy or greed or all that, they're all proofs that you and I are out of harmony with God. When I covet, when I envy, I doubt God's goodness. I doubt his wisdom, his provision, his promise, his sovereignty. I feel somehow underprivileged. He hasn't done enough for me in, in at least one area of my life or some areas of my life. One of the books I read, um, I forget the man's first name, but his last name is Epstein on envy. He calls envy the Rorschach test of the soul. Think about that. You, um, you tell me what you envy. And you will reveal a great deal about yourself. Trace your envies. And they will blaze a trail to the center of you. There's one other thing I want to say and then I'm done. But I'm going to go one step further. Um, But this requires some thinking. You're going to have to hang in there. (laughs) Guys, I read to you from Genesis chapter 3. Why did I do that? Well, you know, of course, Genesis chapter 3 is is the the record of the historic fall um, where sin enters. And a case could be made to say that the first sin ever committed by mankind was a sin of envy because or coveting. That that Eve wanted something that didn't belong to her, and she it was so overpowering that she yielded and took it wrongfully and violently. Now, evolution tries its best to explain to me and you that we, dis- we are descendants of apes, that we're nothing but grown-up germs. Position, of course, that I disagree with heartily, but, but evolution never does a thing to try and explain why we wear clothes. Did you notice in that, that Genesis 3 how often the word naked is mentioned? It's mentioned four times, and actually it's mentioned a fifth. But it's, the word's not used, but the concept is. Genesis 3 is where we started to wear clothes. Now, why is that? Because, gang, with the entrance of sin, there became a consciousness of self. There's this sudden, horrifying awareness of self. Someone is looking at me. And so in response to that discomfort, I put on clothes or they put on clothes. 
Gang, whatever happened at the fall made them aware that they were naked. They were never aware of that before. But with the arrival of sin, the first thing that you begin to see in them is an unexplained self-awareness or at least an unexplained discomfort as a result of self-awareness. They are now uncomfortable to the point that they go and try to cover themselves. There is this exposure because of the entrance of sin of, of self and my own vulnerability and something that's true that I hadn't seen before. Because of all of that discomfort, I begin to cover up. Because I realize for the first time someone is looking at me. And once I realize that, the comparisons begin. so that I can hide my own sense of discomfort or my own shortcomings or my own inadequacies, the solution was, for these two, a cover-up. Gang, what I'm saying is that none of these ugly emotions like jealousy and envy and coveting, coveting, none of that could exist unless we had become aware of self allowing someone else to tell me who I am, dreading the fact that someone somewhere someday might excel me and have more, enjoy more, do more, All of these comparisons that lead to jealousy and envy and coveting stem from this vast reservoir of self-love, of self-interest, of self-protection, of self-promotion, of self-pity. And I find myself with a desire to be first. To be better, to have more. We become discontent when the comparisons begin. I'm not happy, and because I'm not happy, I cannot bear the sight of someone who I think is happy. And so envy becomes intent on the destruction of the happiness of, of those who are defined as better. That's what envy tells us about ourselves. Again, let me quit like this. The gospel is not called good news for nothing. The gospel sweeps into that setting 
and announces a remedy, a twofold remedy. First, the gospel tells me that all of my uglinesses, all of those things that even shame me, all of my failings, all of my sins have been paid for by someone else. My debt has been canceled because of the beauty and the righteousness and the perfection of someone else. He has become what I should have been. He lived the life that I should have lived. And then that same gospel also tells me that when I enter into a relationship with Christ, He not only sticks a ticket to heaven in my pocket, but He also makes me brand new. He gives me a, He gives me a fresh start. And He makes it possible, maybe for the first time, He makes it possible for me to get over, to get over myself. And through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, I can begin to tame. I can begin to calm the battle that rages within me over myself. That's why they call it good news, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus Christ has lived the life that I should have lived and died the death that I should have died. And now, I've been made brand new to go live differently than before. That's the beauty of the Christian message. Is it yours? Is Christ your Savior? Have you embraced Him? Our Father, I do pray that you will remind us uh, of what the fall has, how the fall has ravaged us all, and it has, and I pray that you will point us towards the beauty of the remedy that is found only in Christ Jesus. And from there, Lord, we can hope. From there, we can, we can take joy in knowing that tomorrow can be, can be better than today. That because of the power of the indwelling spirit, I can, I can begin to drain myself of all of those self-centered concerns. Father, would you do that? Would you do that in me? Would you do that in us? Would you do it at Grace Evan? Would you prompt us to see, cause us to see, and allow us to see, enable us to see the great provision that you have made for us in Christ is not simply found in heaven. But it also changes the life that we now live. We make our prayer, of course, in the name of Christ Jesus.